What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Milner. And today I had the pleasure of interviewing Josh Cuthbert, uh, who is a super knowledgeable dude when it comes to training. Uh, he works with athletes. He works with uh, general population. He just had, is a wealth of knowledge. Like If you want to nerd out on training and just level up, this is the episode for you. Uh, you can connect with Josh on Instagram at jcuthbert underscore training. That's J-C-U-T-H-B-E-R-T underscore training. And as always, you can connect with me at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. If you enjoy this episode, please screenshot it and tag us both on your stories. We want to know who's listening and we appreciate it. Enjoy the interview. All right, guys, I'm joined today by Josh Cuthbert from All In Performance and just an overall badass trainer. Uh, and this is an interview that I've been looking forward to for a while because on this show, we talk a lot about nutrition. We talk a lot about mindset, uh, but we never really get into specifics about training, which was actually my first passion and how I got into the industry. So it'll be good to get back to my roots and just have uh, a discussion about training and, and see where it goes. But first, uh, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Love what you do. Um, yeah. Awesome. So, um, before we get into some of the specifics that we're going to talk about, um, just give everybody, all the listeners kind of a little bit of a background, um, how you got started, you know, you know, your journey and, and to, you know, from how you got started to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what I love so much about this field is everybody has a backstory, right? Like what's your, why, how'd you get into this field? Like what drives you every day? And I think, you know, for most people that get you, you know, that get you in the door, right? But eventually, like, you got to continue to grow and, like, you know, have something else that, like, drives you to helping people. And for me, I got injured in college, which, you know, hindered my ability, potential ability to go on to the NFL, um, got hurt at a Seattle Seahawks um, minicamp. So there was a portion of me that felt lost, right? So there was part of me that, thought maybe I didn't get the training that I needed in college or I didn't get the recovery that I needed coming back from the ACL injuries. And initially that's where I wanted to go. Like I wanted to help people that were coming off of injury return to sport. So thought about PT school, um, you know, did a rotation part of my internship, hated it, like just hated the lethargic, just kind of slow, you know, mindset of PT, um, decided training was more my passion. I've always liked the weight room, but I wanted to find my niche. So I recognize there's a portion of people that don't get their return to sport completely. Like you might have 20 PT visits, like Mike, you hurt your shoulder, you get 20 visits and then, then you're out. So you're either paying the PT $200 or there's somebody out there that knows enough about human anatomy and how the body works. that They can still help you get back to where you need to be plus some. So that's where like my passion originally came from. And then I saw that expand into, I'd have somebody coming off a knee replacement and they'd be with me for reconditioning. And then they'd say, well, you know, I know I'm cleared, but I don't really want to leave. Like one, I like our relationship. I like where we're going. I want to continue to get stronger. And then it's just progressed into, you know, personal training slash strength conditioning business from there. Now for me, um, I pride myself on that. But I think it's made me so much better of a coach because I know how to work around all of these anatomical, you know, imbalances or they have this, they have that injury. Whereas if you come to me fresh and you're clean and all we have to do is get bigger, faster and stronger, like let's fucking go. Like that's, that, that's great. It's the people that have limitations that really challenge me. And that's what I like so much about my portfolio of clients. I can have a all pro NFL athlete at 10 o'clock and at 12 I might have a 70-year-old who just had bilateral knee replacement. And they both challenge me in different ways, right? But both of them still have the same goal in mind. Like they want to get better. And I'm lucky and I'm fortunate that they choose me to help them. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. What were, what were some of the things that you initially noticed with just the recovery process with dealing with people who are coming back from injury, specifically athletes, uh, maybe that was missing in the space that you felt like, you know, they really weren't getting the treatment or the proper recovery that you felt like you filled a void, getting them back to, you know, the level that they were at pre-injury or even beyond that. Did you start to see some just like holes in the way things were, were being done that you were able to come in and fill that void? 
I do. And I think you like what you do is a big part of this. There's such a, you know, one size fits all mindset within every rehab protocol, whether it was a knee an ankle, a hip, a shoulder, like they would get the doctor script. They would take them through. It was six months, ACL straight to the strength coach. And from my experience, I wasn't like, I just, I wasn't ready mentally one, but I also wasn't ready physically. And a lot of what I see in individuals is their inability to control a load like eccentrically. So that's a big part of my training, even with healthy athletes is the ability to load under control and then expanding into an isometric, into a concentric from there. But a lot of range of motion stuff goes on early on in the rehab process and they get them back to where they're just firing, firing, firing. But then when it comes time to actually load under control, they can't do it. Right. So you'll take a guy from an ACL and they can run full speed. They're back. They're like, oh, I can run a four four again. I right, run a four four now stop in four steps. I can't. Why? Because you didn't load them eccentrically enough throughout that process. And it's the same thing with shoulders. Like they're back, they can throw, but yet they can't slow their arm down. So 30 throws into the day, they're like, ow, I'm having pain again. Right. So that's an approach that I take with both injured and healthy athletes. It's a modified triphasic method, but just you know, instead of doing high repetition, 20, 30 reps, we're going six to 10 seconds under load. Um, and I love it. You know, they get mad at me. They hate it. But that's a, you know, extended time under tension method. And I think it converts well to, to sport also. Yeah, that's super interesting. Now, talk about the difference because, you know, in dealing with athletes, there's very sport-specific movements. You know, if you're dealing with an NFL athlete, obviously, um, change of direction, they have to stop and go. Uh, there's a lot of just lateral movement and, and everything else. So coming back from an injury, that might look different where when you're dealing with gen pop, somebody who's just dealing with a knee issue or a back issue, um, they might not necessarily need the performance side of it, but do you treat it the same Like, or, or just talk about that? So what are the similarities and then what are some major differences when you're dealing with somebody who needs to get back to their sport versus somebody who just needs to get back into the weight room to be better off the couch, right? Right, exactly. Um, so differences, differences in, mo- in modality of the movement, right? So if, if we're taught early on in strength conditioning to train movement patterns, not lifts in general, um, I may progress a NFL athlete faster into a single leg RDL and little miss Susie Rogers. She may be in a bilateral, you know, broomstick RDL, but for her, she's still, she's still relearning that hinging pattern, still loading the posterior chain, still learning how to remain and keep tension throughout that whole movement. It's just the movement that she's doing is not near as advanced as the high end athlete. Now that stuff changes when you start getting into like the plyometric portion, um, not going to have many elderly doing single leg jumps, but if they can and they get to that point, I still have them kettlebell swinging. I might still have them do a TRX assisted, you know, squat jump. Things that still require the firing and the recruitment of those motor units, but not just the overall strain on the joints that they'd get from you know a hang power clean, right? Like they don't need to be doing that. But I do believe that people still need to explode the best of their ability as they age so that when they go to get off the couch and they're 70, they don't have to use their hands, lean on the side. Like they're still able to produce enough force to do that without assistance. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious with specifically with coming back from injury, because the the worst injury that I had was I was um, doing back squats and had a horrible back spasm at the bottom of the squat and had to bail was excruciating felt like I got stabbed in the back uh, and coming back from that injury the mental hurdles were more challenging like I could still go to the gym and do and work around it I could still you know do some stuff that I need to get done but it was when I it was time to get back to using a barbell, putting it on my back and squatting, it was the mindset of, oh, fuck, this is going to happen again. Yeah. Uh, so, so talk about that side of it. And I'm, and I'm curious also, since you deal with both athletes and gen pop, if there's a similar or if like athletes have this ability to, to kind of turn off that side of them versus general pop, like, you know, I'm not trying to play in the NFL, but I had, I had a longer mental recovery than I did a physical recovery. So can you talk about that side of it? Yeah. So in my experience, I would almost say that it might be harder for athletes, especially ones that are getting paid high amounts of dollars to do something if they 
sustained an injury, especially in the weight room, can you imagine trying to get them back into that movement, right? So an NFL player gets hurt on a back squat and he makes over a million dollars a year. Mentally, how is he going to get back into a back squat, right? So for me, I always try to manipulate the variables of that movement so that it might be a belt squat to start a trap bar deadlift slash squat after that progress into a front squat and to the point where they're doing the movement and then it's time, right? So if they've been, you know, progressed into it, I think it's a lot easier than, all right, well, your back's feeling better. We're just going to start lighter on back squats than we were before, before you got hurt. And then just trying to say, you like, you're good, right? Like they have a lot on the lines and on the other end, adults, gen pop, if they got hurt doing a back squat, they're definitely not going to want to do a back squat again, right? So you have to, again, ease them back into that movement and you may never do it again. Like I've had people that came to me before they got hurt doing a Bulgarian split squat. Well, we've been together two years and if they don't want a Bulgarian split squat, you got to have enough movements in your repertoire that you can still challenge them without doing the movement that put them with you in the first place, right? Yeah, and I think that's one of those common misconceptions where – People think that there's exercises or movements that you have to do. Like everybody has to deadlift. Everybody has to squat and having, you know, an arsenal where you can work around something. You can still get the same effect uh, with there's plenty of variations on every movement pattern. Uh, What are some other, you know, you talked about in the beginning how it it seemed like the whole rehab process was more one size fits all. And it was, Mm -hmm. and it was just like the same protocol for everybody. Um, And then seeing just some of these like gross generalizations that we make, uh, what are some other things that you notice from a training perspective that are like common myths that people still perpetuate in the industry? Um, One thing is that every sport needs to train differently, right? So golf, football, baseball, basketball, soccer, they all need to have completely different strength training programs because there's so much different in nature. Now, from a aerobic standpoint, like a speed, like, like field work, maybe that their um, energy systems are a little bit different. But what you're looking to accomplish in the weight room is first things first, injury prevention. And you do that just through proper protocols. Um, the second thing is the ability to absorb force and reproduce it, right? So force absorption and production. And then third is just making them more powerful in general, right? Um, And within that, most of the protocols are the exact same, right? Like you want to triple extend, you want to be able to squat, hinge, push, pull, lunge, all of those things within every single sport. Like if you show me a UFC fighter, so like Luke Sanders does a lot of the same exact things that I'll do with my football players. Now I'll incorporate a little bit more on like some rotational, velocity work with Luke, but at the end of the day, like he still has to be able to transfer force from his right leg and his right arm into somebody's face. Whereas like George Kittle has to be able to stop on a dime with his right leg and re-engage going back left every play, right? Or he has to be able to drive right leg, right arm punch into somebody every single play. So I'm a big, um, and Cody McBroom's the same way. Like I'm a huge unilateral person and not just hitting some lunges, on like the back end of the workout, like a lot of my stuff, like that's my primary mover of the day. Um, I made a poster there and one of my guys was doing like Bulgarian split squat with like a split squat jump afterwards. Like that may be my first block. Whereas 95% of the people, they have to deadlift, they have to squat, they have to do something bilaterally to start their workout. And we may never do bilateral. Um, and that's, for me, that's okay because at this point of their career, especially athletes, you're not really increasing that much more of their athletic ability, but you may be able to help them produce force from one limb to the next more efficiently. Yeah. Um, if I can funny. do that, then I've done my job and kept them off the, you know, injured reserve. Right. Right. And it's funny that you went that direction. Cause literally my next question was going to be, if you feel like there is an underutilization of unilateral work, which mm-hmm. I feel like in most training programs, that's, like a glaring thing that I see, I, I buy a lot of training programs on just to see what other people are producing. And that yeah. it typically um, is one of the most notable things. It's like a lack of unilateral work. So yeah. um, that answers that question. Yeah. Um, but I want to kind of go in the um, individualized direction since, since you already brought that up. Um, you know, what, I saw a post the other day and I can't, I think it was John Meadows and he was talking about the science of like exercise frequency and how we want to use studies as a guide, but 
they shouldn't dictate what we do for everybody. So he was talking specifically about like training frequency. How many times should I hit a body part per week? And he was like, well, on the one school of thought, if you know, all the research says that two times per week is ideal. Um, what if I'm absolutely trashed after a leg day, but now I have a second leg day session scheduled that week? Is that really optimal for me? Or on the flip side of that, okay, let me just do one time per week. But what if my legs are recovered enough for me to hit another session later that week? I'm missing out on an opportunity to grow and get stronger. So the point being that we really have to assess the individual. Yeah. So um, let's talk about that, like break it down from how you look at, I mean, let's start with training frequency since that was the example. Um, mm -hmm. How do you look at that when you're dealing with an individual client? Um, how many, you know, where you would start them and then kind of assess where they're at and start to break down, you know, body parts per week and, and that sort of thing. So not to, uh, not to rule out like gen pop, but for the most part, I might only have them two days a week. Right. So that's probably two. If I have them three, three full body days a week, um, which isn't typically enough for most people to progress, but that's like, that's more of an income issue. But for my athletes where I know I have them, you know, Monday through Saturday, at least four days a week. Right. So the first thing that I like to look at is training age and training history. So every single one of my guys comes from a different tree of strength coaches. Right. So, um, I got two guys from Iowa, three guys from Iowa who, uh, coach Boyle is a, huge volume guy. Like he put people into the hospital a couple of years ago. It was on ESPN for like 10 by tens on back squats, all that stuff. So I know out of the gate, those guys by nature can handle more volume, right? So I can hit them pretty heavy on a Monday and not really undulate intensity on a Wednesday if we're doing either upper or lower body. Now on the flip side, I may have a guy from Indiana state that really may not have a ton of lifting experience. Maybe he was a stud there, didn't want to do a ton of volume. Um, with him, you know, that's why I have separate groups or try to, then he'll have a little bit less. So his daily undulate, like everybody's daily undulated. I don't follow like a true linear periodization within my training. Um, then I can undulate his intensity on the second day. I always try to start, you know, pretty heavy on the first day of the week you know, intensity is going to be a little bit higher, but everybody that I have either wears a whoop or an aura ring or at the bare minimum, like an Apple watch. And I can see at least if I see a spike in resting heart rate, I know recovery is down a little bit. Now the whoop gives me every single thing I need from sleep to heart rate variability. And that gives me more information than I could ever use, which is awesome. Like if you have clients that are looking for like the ultimate recovery tool, you know, team whoop, no, I don't have a code. If you want a code, ask Chase Tuning. He's got a code. But, uh, you know, things like that really help when it comes to a week-to-week -week basis on training, especially when dealing with high-end athletes where you come in. Most of them don't want to do the same thing on Monday as they did last Monday. So I have to be able to change the movement pattern slightly, maybe keep it from front squat to back squat, vice versa, whatever it is, trap bar squat. Um, to still progress throughout the off season. And within that, you know, they think they're getting something new. They think they're getting better because they are, um, and they are enjoying the process of training. So I would say that I may hit like a true 95% intensity every other week with professional athletes. I like to use the analogy that these guys are Ferraris, right? They're BMW i8s, whatever your supercar of choice is. They want to get the best oil change possible so that their gears are revved up and ready to go in the, um, in the off season versus putting mileage on the vehicle. Like if I'm putting more miles and more wear and tear on the vehicle, then that's probably my last off season with those guys. So I try to push them, but I do understand that they're at a point of their career where they're not looking to put their body in any risk slash um, you know, have it, any sort of adverse setback. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, I love that analogy. That's perfect. I'm wondering if you have a, sometimes might have a challenge with, you know, an athlete who may be a type one um, who's like this very competitive, like I want to go crush it in the gym, go beast mode. And you're like, you know what? You know, your whoop score is down. We're going to focus on recovery. We're going to back off intensity. And like what that conversation is like when they come in there just like all hyped up, ready to go. 
So one thing that I do, and I don't know if a lot of coaches do this, I don't write the workout on the board until they're starting their warm up. And within that, I can tell when somebody comes in the type of energy that they give me on that first dap, you know, their girlfriend broke up with them or they didn't sleep at night, right? Like their kid was crying all night. Like that t- the first five minutes of them being in the building tells me more about what we're going to get out of that training session than anything in the world. And, I, and that's the same way with general population. Like that first dap that I get slash hug, whoever it is can tell me how heavy we're going to go that day or how intense that session is going to be. Um, I do have to try to take people back down into like a slight parasympathetic mode at times when they're just coming in super juiced and like, you know, today's not the super juiced day, right? Like we got to let's foam roll for just a couple minutes. I know you might be a little sore. No, I feel fine. No, we got to do a little foam rolling, let's do some activation. We'll do some breathing, like things that you need. And then I just have to kind of convince them that that's for their best interest, right? Explain to them why this is going to benefit them. Although I know I'm actually just kind of calming them down a little bit. So that when we get to training, they're not too excited. Like that excitatory response isn't out the, out of the roof on a day that it's not supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious how you handle some of the other variables that will impact the recovery, right? Cause it's such an important part of the process and you know, our bodies don't know the difference between different stress inputs and outputs. So mm-hmm. you have an athlete coming to you, you mentioned, you know, maybe their kid was up all night, maybe, you know, their, their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, somebody just broke up with them. There's uh, there's tension in their life. They didn't sleep well, their nutrition is shit, like all these other variables that will impact the way that they can perform when they come to you. So how do you try to manage those variables that you don't really have control over, but you know, they're such an important part of the process. Having a, uh, having a team of individuals around me. So I know, I know from a therapeutic standpoint, I can rely on the massage therapist twice a week to kind of take them back down, kind of help them, you know, recover. I know that the PTs and chiropractors in my circle are going to give them the absolute best care. So they're going to get their body feeling ready, ready to Wednesdays are typically our day off. So after Wednesday, they're going to feel better come Thursday. And then nutrition, I've talked to Jason about this all day. It's something that we struggle with. It really is. Um, A lot of it is they've had the mindset, right? That in college, they just need to eat as much as they can to maintain weight. And that's once you get into the NFL or major league baseball, it's not really the case. Your workload is, is, reduced drastically. Um, you don't have to eat Panda Express, you know, for lunch, trying to smash 2,500 calories and GMO through the roof. Right. So trying to educate guys on, you know, just basic macro principles, right. You know, what they might need, what might benefit them. And then I have outsourced some guys to people like Jason and, um, Cody that can really just continue the education process. And then the last thing we do is hire a chef, right? Like we give the macros to the chef and then they, they prep the meals or a place like clean eats or um, eat well natural or some local places that we have that can help facilitate those meals that actually fit their macro breakdown. Yeah. I think it's interesting because even, you know, it's like they've been getting away with it for so long because they're genetically gifted because they've been, you know, working at this sport and going through this process for, for such a long period of time and not really needing to rely on nutrition. And that, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not an example of this, but I did play in high school and, and, you know, some into college and never had to worry about what I was eating. Cause it was, it was just not a, a thought in my mind at that point, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And but then when you think about the advantage of just paying a little bit of attention, especially for an athlete of that level, and you think about the guys who have done that, like LeBron is the first person that comes to mind who like really dialed in on his nutrition and just became, you know, his longevity, uh, you know, he put on size and muscle and it's just been dominating for so long. Um, it makes a huge difference. Even at that top 1%, you're looking yeah. for every advantage that you can get. And that's one of those spots that I feel like is missed. Um, typically, you know, for the most part, would you say that that's like something that's just, it's, it's something that generally athletes could use more awareness and education around? I think so for sure. And I don't think, I think now they have education, right? Like every team has registered dietitians, nutritionists on staff, whatever it is. I think it's just, um, in Sal, uh, mind pump Sal talked about this, uh, at the impact collective, like just on the side, it's just, it's a detachment from their normal eating habits and their normal dietary intake. Right. Like they, they enjoy food too much. And I think at the income level that a lot of them are until you get to a LeBron or you're like a, a quarterback that you can have somebody prepare every meal for you 365 days a year, you know, four days or four times a day, then they just go to things that taste good. Right. 
Um, and there's nothing wrong with food that tastes good, right? You just, you got to understand that the things that you put in your body are fueling you and fueling your future. Like you're looking at things that can affect you 10 years down the road right now when you're talking about your overall athletic performance. Um, so for these guys, the best we like the best service we can do for them is provide meals. Um, and if we can do that for two out of the three or four that they eat a day, I think that gives them an upper hand compared to they normally would be. Um, and then just, you know, hoping that the meals that they eat at home are substantial enough and not too much crap. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting part about that is most elite athletes who are kind of like the naturally gifted, um, they're typically going to be type one A's type one B's when we're talking about what neurotype they are. And those are the neurotypes that are most prone to gravitating towards fast food. It's not, it's yeah. just because that's their personality. They just don't give a fuck. It's like, mm-hmm. and I, I remember there was a, a hard knocks with, uh, when, when, Chad Ochocinco was playing for the Bengals and he was like, you know, McDonald's three times a day. That's how I fuel myself. And it's like that he's a classic one B and that's just where they gravitate towards just from their neurological makeup. Um, So I'm curious, like when you're dealing with different personalities and these people who, these athletes who have a lot on the line, um, you must have to wear so many different hats as far as how you coach them. Um, So you know, talk about that, like the different personalities and, and how, you know, something that we were talking about before we started recording is that you, know, you mentioned trying to be like a chameleon and different dealing with different personality types. So, so can you give some examples? Cause like I saw a video that you posted um, and I think like George Kittle was in there and it, like guys are getting hyped up and amped up, but then you might have somebody who maybe a little bit more like even keel just wants like an organized tactical plan without all of like the the hype up and talk about like the different personalities and how you manage that as a as a strength coach as best i can now that i'm in the private sector like we don't have a weight room full of 30 or 40 guys um putting people with like-minded in the same group right so within that within that post i had for like five tight ends right like they're they're all about like you know what like that's that's in their makeup. They're, they play that position. They're big. They're strong. They drive people into the ground. They try to run through people's faces. So I know when I have that group, I know what I got to bring to the table, right? But my next group after that, I might have a slot receiver that is like, you know, a punt returner, a little bit more swaggy, not as much, you know, heavy metal bang yourself into the wall, right? So like, that's a little bit more energetic session, but like more just having fun versus like I'm screaming, you know, getting people juice, like smacking myself <laughs> to get people ready. Right. Um, so I think for me, the best way for me to do that is kind of just separating people based on their neurotypes. Like I have some specialists, like the guy I had before this was a long snapper in the NFL and I try to put him with some offensive linemen, you know, maybe some other specialists some like-minded individuals that aren't as much into the, the raw, raw, type stuff like they come in just want to get their work done you know they're the ones that get you know the positions that get the least amount of attention offensive line special teams they kind of all think the same like they just want to come in they want to get their work done they want to get better and then they want to get out whereas you know tight ends wide linebackers things of that nature they want to get the work done they want everybody to see it and they want everybody to hear it and they want everybody to hear it because you are the one you know providing the energy. So, um, if I have like a guy that doesn't really belong, I do kind of try to put him out of rack a couple places over. I'll give some attention over here. Then I'll come over, give him a little bit of like one-on-one, you know, here's what you got, you know, watch your knee. It's kind of caving in femoral rotation. You know, he'll say, you know, thanks. Got it. And then those are also the guys that can kind of get stuff done on their own, right? Like they don't need you there as much because they're not looking for constant energy, constant motivation, constant drive. They're just there to get their work done, right? So you can mix those types of individuals, but from a like a fluidity standpoint, you want to have juice during the juice hour and you want to have like a little bit calmer session with some guys that are a little bit calmer in nature. Yeah, I think it's cool how like great coaches pick up on those type of differences very like intuitively you learn very quickly like yes everybody has a different personality and a, a good coach like yourself will will mold to the to the individuals to the clients whereas you know there's a lot of coaches out there who they might have all the knowledge in the world but they almost have their way of doing things and it's like yeah. if you don't do it my way then then too bad and and they yeah. try to fit everybody else into their box versus being adaptive and being like okay I know what type of person I'm working with I'm going to try and group these and I like that you know you group them together that way you know they 
they almost feed off of each other. It makes your job easier. You know what type of energy is going to you know be involved in that session. Um, so so that's awesome. I love that. Um, let's get to. Make, oh, sorry, I was going to say a lot of these guys have had four, five, six different strength coaches in their days, and every single one of them has a guy that they prefer. Right. So if they're coming to you, like you'll you'll learn early on like the movements that they like, the energy that they like, and you got to be able to kind of you know, mold to them. Otherwise they're going, they're going to go to somebody else. Right. So it kind of comes to that, that connection based model that we talked about. I'm no better, like from a a knowledge standpoint than anybody around, right. You know, everybody's smart. Everybody's got their master's degrees. They got their schooling. They've done their intern, like all that shit. Like everybody's smart. Everybody's a good fucking coach, but can you mold yourself and connect with these different individuals, black, white, brown, you know, receiver, kicker, punter, defensive back, tight end, whatever it is, and still provide what they need from a personality standpoint is why people come back to you, right? Like you probably have clients that have been with you for years, right? It's not because they still need you to help them with their programming or their macros or any of those things. It's because they like you as a person now and not now you're in. Like yeah. you found what they like and I'm sure there's times you got to adjust your personality slightly for different individuals based on how they are. And then that's it. Like that's the name of the game. You got to be able to connect. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Is there a curious if there's like a group or a type of personality that you like working with more that maybe aligns with, with your personality, your neurotype? Oh yeah. Energy. I'm a big energy guy. Um, and that's, it's actually something that I've grown into. So my first internship was at California Berkeley in the summer of 2013. And that was like my first couple of weeks. That was one of the things that they came back at. They're like, we need you to provide more energy. So I got a little bit better at it. Like I started. And then by the time I got to Louisiana Tech the next year, I was like, I was the juice guy, right? Like I'm not banging my head on helmets, but I was very comfortable raising my voice, very comfortable, you know, getting the group riled up, you know, before I was a little bit more introverted, which I was a specialist slash special teams guy in college. So I spent a lot more time like kind of as like a social loner, but getting into this space, I've expanded into now I'm the guy that people want them to get hyped by, which is crazy because that's not really me. Like if you hang out with me and like, you know, at the collective, I wouldn't come off as that guy. And I'm, I'm truly not, but in a weight room, you know, I just, I open up like I'm a different person. Um, and I think that's where I thrive with people like George and Rob and uh, Dante Hightower. Like they bring a ton of energy and I thrive off that. And then it's just like, it's through the roof, like guns blazing balls to the wall. Let's get it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and it, it's funny because, you know, my, my personality is more adaptive by nature. Um, so I've trained with people who are, who are like that. And, and I've definitely like more grown into that. You almost learn through experience and like feeding off of other people. But then you have that in your arsenal. So if I'm ever yeah. in a situation, like I can bring the energy. I'm the same way. Like you see me. You know, when we're at the collective, I'm, I'm quiet. I'm, I'm pretty just like laid back, reserved. Um, but I can turn it on when I need to. Um, so real quick, you know, you, you train a lot of professional athletes and I'm wondering because, you know, I know personally as a fan, that shit drains my energy when I'm like invested in a team, but you have people all over. Um, so have you been able to like disconnect from, I mean, you want your athletes to perform or is it something that you still have to work through where like you get, you know, that emotional investment, um, into their team winning or how they perform as an individual? I'm pretty invested. Um, and my, my wife, like, I think, you know, I feel bad for her at times, but, um, we'll leave an event. I gotta go, I gotta go watch. Or, um, there's a couple guys that, uh, I'm a little bit closer with. So I talk to them before, you know, every game I'm going to a client's wedding in Europe this off season, we're going to train, which four of my clients are going to be there. So it just, it just makes sense. But I do, I do have a hard time, like kind of disconnecting from that. And I think as I continue to grow, like the amount of people that I see, I can't be that emotionally invested to every single player for every single team, every single game, right? Like there's, you know, you get to having 20 or 25 individuals and there's only so many hours in the day. Like that's why I got rid, like I stopped playing fantasy football because, you know, my team was made up of all my guys and, you know, some of them aren't, you know, that great. Like they're good, they're in the NFL, right? But you can't just draft them on your fantasy team if they're not a stud, right? Um, but yeah, it's, it's actually something I, I don't know if I should work on because. Um, Again, that's why I think I'm pretty successful is how I connect with people. And I don't want to lose that, right? Um, but 
I think now at this point in my career, I have a lot of guys that they kind of pop in for two weeks, like they're in and out. They're not like full timers and that helps, right? Like they're, they're connected to you. Like, you know, you know, good job. Like we'll see in a couple of weeks, but they're not like, they're not like part of your like blood. Um, like you don't blood, sweat and tears with those guys for months in the off season. But I don't know. I, uh, I get pretty invested in it. Yeah. You know, I, I like to, uh, I like to see how they're doing. You know, I take a lot of pride in what I do. Um, but one thing I want to state real quick, like while we're here is I tell people all the time, they're like, Oh, you know, so-and-so is doing so great this year. You know, you probably did such a great job with them in the off season. And in all honesty, like I have guys for 75 days of the year. Right. Um, I didn't get any of these guys minus two of them until after college, which means they had 22 years of preparation before they got to me. Um, I'm not an extremely selfish guy. Like a lot of these people were great athletes before they got to me. Right. So I never take full credit for what somebody does on or off the field when it comes to their performance, because they've spent a lifetime getting to that point. Right. So I try to help them become better, but there's, there's an unlimited number of coaches that have helped them also get to that point. So I think it's something that gets overlooked when you see a lot of Instagram coaches, like, you know, claiming credit for somebody becoming a pro bowl athlete and all that stuff is the fact that there was somebody else that was with them in the trenches for four years in college or four years in high school, or their dad was with them in the weight room. Right. So it gets overlooked, but you know, those are the guys that did, you know, laid the groundwork. And then I'm just here to, you know, like I said, change the hole and make sure that we're running clean. Yeah. And I think that just, that speaks to you as a person and as a coach and um, you know, but the, the amount that you care is obviously a big reason why you're successful. So I do think, you know, I have the same thing with my clients. It's like, I'm so invested in their results and their process. And, and it is a hard thing to just turn off because I think that is, you know, part of the reason why I've been, you know, relatively successful is that how much I care and how much I'm yeah. truly invested in, in their success. And um, sometimes, you know, it does, it, it does result in sleepless nights and that sort of thing. But I think it just kind of, it's, it's a work in progress and trying to find that balance, like not losing that amount of, you know, passion and care and um but also not allowing it to like spill over and and run your life um so but i think that that's a good way to put it um as far as you know only dealing with an athlete and we could let's just use like a specific example so uh you only have you know a nfl player like george kittle you only have him in the off season mm-hmm. what does that look like from your perspective or your programming how you would manage that differently versus if you were training them year round and what you might, how you might phase things a little bit different differently. And then what your focus is in that short period of time. So for me, um, he's one of the guys where I, I send, I just send a workout every week, um, in season. He's a guy that he works out four days a week, even though they're only required to do two. Um, so I know a lot about what he does throughout the, the season. Um, but for most, uh, getting in contact with their, their staff. Right. So I'm, I'm not afraid to call somebody from the New York jets and say, Hey, I got Tyler McDermott starting this week. Can you give me a little bit about what you guys have been doing? That way I can, you know, either continue that or continue with my own variation. Right. Uh, I think that gets overlooked also as people, they just try to take somebody from doing something for eight months out of the year. And now we're just going to implement my way exactly how I do it. Right. So these people are used to doing something, a certain set schedule. You want to try to, you know, tailor to that as best you can because that's where they're comfortable. That's where they spend the most of their time. Um, but within that, I still like to, everybody has their own twist. Right. Um, if I drastically disagree with what, you know, a team's doing, um, I'll have a conversation with the athlete and say, you know, how do you think that works for you? Do you like doing linear periodization all year long? Would you like to have a little bit more of a change up? Yes, I hate doing the same thing every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Great. Let's change it up a little bit. We'll daily undulate it for you. And then, you know, I know then I can throw them in with that group of people that likes to have the change, likes to bring a little bit of energy. And it's all part of, for me, it's the initial consultation with people. And then I'm at the point now where I'll have the same eight guys during this time. And then if you come in and you're here for like a week or two, it's really hard for me to really change my variables if you're just dropping in, right? So somebody like George, um, he'll have a ton of a ton of his friends that come in for a couple of weeks now, right? Because he's a big name guy. Um, and within that, they understand that they're just coming in. They're coming in to get good work, but they're not going to get tailored to quite like they would if they were 
you know, with me all year long. Yeah. Um, do you have to manage the different, so let's take an NFL player in the off season. Uh, do you try and focus them on like maybe for this specific off season, they want to get more powerful or maybe it's strength and size, or maybe it's quickness and agility. Like, do you have somebody uh, kind of go through that process of like, let's hone in on something specific that you want to improve or is there more of a general focus? Um, general focus during the like actual off season. So I have two seasons with these guys. I have them from February to late April, which is where we have the most amount of time. And then after mini camp, I have them for about a month, which is where it becomes more specific to one, the position two what they're looking to get. But I think within a good off season program, like you're really just trying to rebuild that base because like I said, they live twice a week, which we know typically isn't enough, especially somebody of that nature, that strong, that powerful to maintain throughout the whole year. So within that, that's where I actually get the bulk of my like heavy hard work is early on. And then as we progress into June and July, we cut back some of the volume intensity might come up a little bit speed on the bar might come up more time on the field, but that's where we actually try to tailor to that individual a little bit more early on. It's time of retention and you know, a lot of volume in the weight room, less time running because I'm trying to put size on guys and then we kind of tailor to them in the second half. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so shifting gears a little bit to more gen pop, I think it's interesting when we start to get into some more of the advanced you know, techniques and strategies. And we talk about, you know, maybe it's like exercise selection or maybe it's training based off your neurotype. And, you know, even within nutrition, you have everybody, you know, spouting off different methods and, and strategies, but sometimes they mistake the forest for the trees, right? They try and jump into, well, how can I do meal timing or how can I optimize my exercise selection? But we're missing out on the basics. So when you think about like training basics for general population, what are some of your like core principles that nobody can ignore regardless of where you're at? Like as far as a gen pop, uh, crawl before you walk, walk before you run. And I think that, you know, that's, that's extreme, but we talk so much about unilateral training and I, I tend to think that way with people that have a decent training history, right? So if you can't, if you can't goblet squat 30 pounds for, I don't care, regardless of gender for a solid 10 reps, why am I going to have you doing, barbell bulgarian split squats right so building a base because for me strength is king like the stronger you are minus like an actual power lifter looking to peak but like just general strength um injury resilience goes up like you're more resilient to injury like just everyday quality of life goes up if you're a pretty good squatter pretty good hinger like getting off the couch is that much easier so i think people they do like they, they see the stuff and it's the problem a little bit with our field, everything they see on the internet, they want to start doing right. Like they see some girl climbing the rope and I'm like, yeah, but you can't even, you can't even do a, a dumbbell row. Like let's, let's take a step back. So taking those primary movement patterns, right. We talked the squat, the push, the pull, the hinge, all those things and incorporating them early on. And I think that's when I do regardless of kind of what they like. I follow a little bit more of a standard linear progression because they're, able to neuromuscularly increase so fast that if we're changing variables every time we could be potentially hindering that early training, um, advancements that they would get. Right. So that's the only time where I'm a little bit more strict on, all right, we're going to squat on Mondays. We're going to hinge on Wednesdays. We're going to do this on Fridays. That way I know during that first eight weeks of this is the time for them to truly get stronger and understand movement patterns. I get enough frequency back to the frequency that they're able to get that general general adaptation syndrome and actually get stronger, get better movement patterns, and then progress. And then once they get the base level of movement, just strength, fitness, um, then we can progress, right? Oh my goodness, I'm tired of doing this. We've been doing this for eight weeks. Great. Now we're changing. Now we got this, this day, this, that day. And then I can undulate my variables and kind of give them what they want. But people, they don't give enough credit to that early early strength phase that they should be going into just learning movement patterns and spending time in it. They just kind of jump around. I think it hinders, you'll see the people, right? They'll bench press the same, you know, 135 for eight reps and they go and they bounce all around the world. And then a year later, you're like, dude, you're still doing the same exact thing. Did you get hurt? Oh no, I just can't get stronger. Hmm, it's weird. Yeah. Exactly. It's the difference between, 
you know, optimizing that neurological adaptation versus taxing your central nervous system, which you're going to have a world of difference in how you feel, you know, jumping into something that you're not ready for, to your point, you know, trying to run before you crawl or walk, like, you know, the CNS takes a long time to recover. Muscles recover quickly, but if we're taxing the central nervous system and we're missing, missing out on some of that neurological adaptation, which in the beginning stage, you know, that's where, you know, you talk about newbie gains and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Like that's where the, you know, the money is like that mm-hmm. to skip out on that is doing a huge disservice. And I, I totally agree on like building the string as the foundation. Mm-hmm. It, it can benefit in, in every area of life. Um, when you hear like a buzzword, like functional fitness, mm-hmm. is that kind of where your mind goes just like building strength for everyday life? I think so. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a kettlebell guru or anything of that nature, but I think there's a lot of tools out here now that we can use, whether it's, you know, the goblet squat, for instance, if you can load somebody up with two kettlebells, that might become a little bit more functional, right? It might create a little bit more tension on the midsection, require a little bit more of the thoracic stability than just a traditional goblet squat, right? So I think that's where the fields increased and actually expanded so greatly is all the different movement patterns that we've been brought to our attention via a million coaches that have used their brain to do all kinds of different things. Whereas 20 years ago, I think everybody squatted pretty much the same way with a barbell. They all pretty much rode the same way with, you know, a barbell or a dumbbell. And now there's, you can type in a, you know, row variation on the internet and they'll give you 200 of them. Right. Um, so that, to me, that's more your functional fitness is all the different variations of movements and how they could potentially carry over to, uh, to life. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I'm curious about your own kind of training regimen. I actually remember when I was just training, teaching classes, doing one-on-ones, group training. That was actually the hardest time for me to stay consistent with my own training. Uh, it was just, I was in the gym all day and I didn't yeah. want to be there any longer than I needed to. And at that point, you're, you're on your feet, you're you know exerting a lot of energy. Uh, what does your own training look like and, and how do you find ways to just, um, are you an early morning like, what's your split look like? What are you training for? Talk about that. Right, uh, right now, and I, you know, not that it's a, a New Year's resolution because I've been doing it since December. But I'm in a like a power phase. Um, I would be potentially interested in competing in Olympic weightlifting again. I did that back in 2013 a little bit. Um, so I'm in a heavy clean cycle, front squat oriented, um, tons of volume on the lower body. So I do that three days a week. That's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, either Tuesday, that Tuesday, Saturday, or Thursday, Saturday is when I get my upper body work in and I'll just go push pull on both those days. Just try and that's straight hypertrophy as best as it can be. Um, and then I'm trying to actually commit, like you said, it's hard when I'm seeing people from five in the morning to potentially five thirty or six thirty at night to commit to the process of actually training. But it's something that I, I got to write it down. Like I got to put it on the board. If I don't put it on the board and I don't check it off, then it probably won't get done. So that's something that I've been doing for the past five or six weeks now. Um, another thing that I struggle with is all these programs, like and I'm sure you get it too, like you're writing a program. People want to see you doing that own program, right? So right now we're strong strong by six um, with Jason and I'll do that on my, on my upper body push and pull day, but that's not going to be my lower body day because I have a lower body program that I'm following. Um, and, you know, people want to see you doing the, you know, the thing that you're, you're selling, but I got something else that I'm working on right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got other goals in mind. Like that, this is a product for people to get in the gym by six o'clock or if they're an afternoon person get to the gym and done by six, like just committing to, it's really, it's about commitment to the process of training again. Uh, Everybody's busy, right? Like you're busy. My wife's busy. Her time is before six. Like she gets home too late in the afternoon. She has to get her training in in the morning. So strong by six. And then I think, uh, I, I like to call it gone in 60 minutes, whatever. Yeah. I like Social it. Media. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like it. My, my workouts have been, and I've talked about this openly lately, just based off of my schedule, it's had to be 30, 45 minutes. Yeah. I have to get it in. I have, I have to be efficient and, and, you know, I'm still in the gym five, six days a week, but I've had to just be more, much more deliberate about how much time I'm in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get, I want to, uh, give you an opportunity to shout out like where people can find you and what exciting stuff you have coming up in the pipeline. But before I do that, I need to get your take on the championship weekend. So you got Niners Packers, you got Titans Chiefs. Who do you like? 
Um, this is like, this is really tough. I have no um, commitment to the chiefs at all. I work with the general manager of the Titans, his whole family. Um, so she's not going to hear this. I don't think the Titans are going to win. Um, I think they're riding a really high wave. They did beat the chiefs this year once at home, but it was Mahomes' first game back after that knee injury. Um, but I got the chiefs by, I got the chiefs by 10. Um, and then the Packers 49er game, another like really, t- I grew up a Packers fan. I have two guys on the Packers. I got three guys about to be four on the Niners. I don't think that the Packers can stop the Niners slash score enough on defense. So I was at the game when they, when they smashed them earlier in the year at Levi stadium. I think, I think I got the Niners again by 10. Your picks are exactly my picks. So um, I'm curious though, since we were talking about the Titans and you see somebody like Derek Henry, who is like, a ridiculous combination of power and speed. Um, just seeing him throw dudes off him with a stiff arm and his ability to, you know, break the open field. When you were in person with dudes like that, or maybe it wasn't like a shock for you because you were, you know, trying to make the NFL and you were, you're an athlete. Um, but did you have like a moment where you realize like this is a whole nother level out there? Um, yeah. So when I first got to college, I came there as a linebacker. Um, and within like the first week I was like, these guys, they're a different breed. Like I, I thought I was strong and fast, but I got there and I, I was no longer the strongest and fastest anymore. And there, you know, there was one free guy that we played with that went on um, to the NFL. And I just remember him squatting 600 pounds, benching 500 plus pounds, running a four, four. And I was like, there's, there's much bigger fish in the pond all yeah. the time. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, so give people um, where they can find you. And let everybody know what you've got coming up that you're excited about and how they can connect with you and all that good stuff. Absolutely. So my biggest uh, platform is probably Instagram, Cuthbert underscore training, um, working on a facility by 2021, um, something that would have a recovery room, PT training, chiropractor, in-house nutritionist, somebody, you know, probably from NCI. um, And then just giving us a place to have a... um, I guess a content studio, right? That's something I, I try to film a lot, but uh, it's not something that I'm very good at. Hence, social media is not really my thing, but I'm getting better at it. So within the programs that we're creating and things that I'm working on in the future, having a place to film 24-7 would be very beneficial. Dude, I love that. And once the facility's ready, I'm, yeah. I'm there. Come on. <laughs> All right, awesome. Um, well, I appreciate you joining me and uh, you know, I'll catch you soon, hopefully yeah. in, in San Diego in February. Absolutely, I'll be there. All right. Awesome. I'll talk to you then. Thanks.